We'll go ahead and jump into it. As far as uh, the movie, so we watched, you guys watched the documentary, and then you watched the uh, movie, which I know is probably tough to watch, like the first hour of a movie, and then just end it uh, and not, not be able to see how everything ends. Uh, so that's, it is a little bit frustrating uh, if you're kind of have that, that, that tendency towards, you know, wanting to see something through. Uh, but hopefully, at least some of the stuff that was covered in the movie, you know, you remember from class or some things that we've touched on in class. Uh, but out of curiosity, so out of the two movies, was there anything that stood out? Was there anything that was uh, you guys weren't sure about? Um, you know, what was the the first the documentary? Obviously, it was made just a few years after 9-11. Uh, so there's really, you know, that was when there was really this hyper-awareness of Islam, uh, in the country, so you know that movie was kind of a response to that. But uh, from your end, how did you? Was it? A, did you think the documentary was good? Was the movie good? Was there anything that you know you found negative? Um, just out of curiosity, so just any discussion points about it? Yeah. In the movie, I, I have a hearing injury, but I got a little confused with all the idolatry that was around. Yeah. The the, uh, the scene. How did this idolatry fit in Islam? Yeah, great question. Great question. Uh, so, yeah, in the movie, the first part of that movie, and for most of the movie, that section, the second movie that you watched, uh, it was dealing with this uh, this topic of idolatry because um, Mecca, which is the the city that they're dealing with, uh, had been a um, had been a really important city. Not only is it located on one of the trade routes, the two trade routes, like a cross section of the east, west, north, south trade routes that went through Arabia, Saudi Arabia, which is what is now Saudi Arabia, but the Arabian Peninsula. Um, but also it was important for a pilgrimage, a religious pilgrimage uh, prior to Islam. So you, if you're familiar with Islam, you know that uh, every Muslim uh, at some point in their life is supposed to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. So wherever you are in the world, whether you're an American, you know, Canadian, whether you live in Indonesia, every Muslim at some point in their life is supposed to make this pilgrimage to Mecca. And uh, that has its foundations. Um, if you remember going back to one of our first sessions, that pilgrimage is actually linked to Abraham and uh, Ishmael in the Bible. So you know, the, the Muslims believe Abraham and Ishmael were the first, Abraham's the first Muslim. He makes this pilgrimage uh, and sets up a, a house of worship in the city of Mecca. And so Muslims connect it with that event. In the meantime, uh, Mecca had become an important place for idolatry. So this big black square building uh, that is under the control of the tribe that Muhammad is part of, the Quraysh tribe. Thank you. Yeah, so they're, um, they had, once a year, uh, what they would do is have, so if you remember the scene, so they're walking in and it's like a big festival, mm -hmm. and they're kind of walking through and there's all these people, there's stuff going on, it's, you know, you have people speaking, you have a market, once, what's this depicting? So once a year, this is a historical event, yeah, thank you, uh, they would have this um, religious pilgrimage where people would come from all over Arabia, no matter what religion they were. So it didn't matter if you were, because there's no, there, there are no Muslims at this point. But if you were Christian, 
if you worship some idol, if you were animus, uh, any, any, didn't matter what religion. It was a time that you would set aside war. Uh, if there was a conflict going on, all that would be like, a, it would be a peaceful time. And all the tribes from all over Arabia would come to Mecca and do this religious pilgrimage and then celebrate their individual gods and put their, uh, a depiction, an idol of their god into, uh, this, this house, this Kaaba. And so that's what the movie is depicting. And so when one of the first things that Muhammad does, when he is able, later in his life, able to take about 622 uh, or so, I think it's about 622 or 625, a few years before he passes away, he cleans that out. Like he breaks all the idols, ends this religious practice. But this is an important foundational concept for Islam, but also it's, it's a depiction of a historical practice that was going on in the Arabian Peninsula at that time. But that eventually gets wiped out. Yeah, yeah. Muhammad ends that practice. And if you uh, if you remember one of the classes we had mentioned that um, there's kind of... Uh, there's historic... Like, it's not, like, written anywhere, but there's just, like, almost like a legend that there was, you know... Because you would have Christians and Jews also right. coming to this place and also participating in this pilgrimage and festival uh, that they were actually uh, religious some type of religious Christian um, things maybe they think it was uh, a depiction of uh, uh, the Virgin Mary but he actually left those in the the house of worship or something so there's this conjecture that that actually occurred some recording of that Uh, but the important thing is that there was this going on Muhammad ends this practice (coughs) Uh, you know, and then and then they turn that into now that that uh, pilgrimage still continues to this day, but now it's just for Muslims. So, and actually, you can't actually Mecca is one of the few cities you actually can't even go to it if you're a Christian. You can't you can't just go there and, and check it out and, and go on vacation or, or do anything there. So, um, what's that? Just buy a It's actually funny because if you look at a picture. Uh, I worked at a place in Dearborn, and they had a picture of of uh, the Cabo, that black building, and it was probably a picture from 25 years ago, like an overhead shot. And it, you know, they can you can see some buildings, but if you look at it now, it, it looks like a carnival. Like they have built up, the Saudi government has built up like high-rise condominiums and stuff all around the con. So they have this big clock too. They put a big clock tower that looks like Big Ben. And then all these high-rise condominiums for the rich, so the rich don't have to go and mingle with the poor people, and they just sit there. And, yeah, it's, it's kind of so. If you see a picture, if you go online and look on now, it, it looks really weird. How do they keep Christians out? Do they card you? What? Are they, yeah, they, they, exactly. What well, how do they know I'm a Christian? Um, well, so great question. How would they know? Uh, you would have to. What is the one of the first things that a Muslim has to do is be able to recite? In Arabic, these certain the shahada, the, the prayer, certain prayers have to be done in Arabic, even if you don't speak Arabic. So they start asking you these questions: Who can you recite this? Can you, you know what I'm saying? And so, I mean, if you can, you can, <laughs> and you can easily fool them if you knew the if you knew the prayers and you knew how to sure. do the the prayer, you actually the motions of the prayer and things like that. Uh, but that in a lot of countries, following on that, you know, uh, Val's question is: How did they know? If you're a Muslim, you know, a lot of countries, they actually list your religion, especially in the Middle East. You know, if you go to Israel and you look at an Israeli ID, it says your religion on there. 
So it doesn't like matter. What's that? Yeah, so <laughs> so it's uh, it's common. It's not I wouldn't say common practice, but it is fairly common in lar- a lot of parts of the world outside of what the West that your religion is actually tied. You know, it's it's printed somewhere so that people can look up your religion. Great question. So we can't go there. Mm-hmm. You can go to Saudi Arabia. You can't go to Mecca. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, but actually, it's one of those things that they, from an academic point of view, it's hard because they want to do some research. You know, just like academic research, they want to go and do archaeological research around the, the region. Let's explore. Let's see if we can find some, you know, stuff that predates Islam. And, and even academics have trouble getting into these areas because they don't want non-Muslims there uh, into these regions. Uh, any other questions? Yeah, Ken. In the movie near the end, when they escaped across the desert, was that a real king, Christian king? Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, all the all the scenes from that movie, The Message, are, are pretty much historical. And they actually escaped to uh, Abyssinia, which is modern day Ethiopia, and he's the king that actually rescues them and gives. Um, he actually keeps a bunch of Muhammad's followers safe for a couple years, almost five years or something. Uh, so some of them stay, a large group flee, go to go across the ocean, uh, the sea and stay with him, some for only two years, but then a large group actually stay on with him for, as under his protection for five years. So, yeah. So, nowadays in Mecca, there's, there's the two Islamic... Um, Sucks. I guess. You, I guess you'd say. Yeah. If they travel to Mecca, is today, is that like kind of considered like peaceful? Like it doesn't matter what part you're from. Like if yeah. you come here, you are safe. Yeah. And then. Great question. Because uh, so actually, it's this. It's this is a really good question. I understand. So what we're talking about. Um, <clears throat> in Islam, you have. The two major uh, sects of Islam are the Sunni, which is the largest, and the Shia. And well, actually, most of what we're talking about when we talk about Islam is the Sunni form of, of Islam. There's, a, there's other groups as well, um, but the two major groups are the Sunni and the Shia. The Shia have always been the minority, even to this day, except for in certain countries. So... Uh, why we hear a lot of the conflict in Iraq right now, because the Shia are actually the majority there. Uh, places like Iran, uh, Bahrain, uh, and those and Lebanon is where the Shia are mainly. But, so we're talking about why uh, these groups have always been in conflict. Um, and we'll, we'll explore more of this when we ex- look at the topic of just look and understand the Shia. Because a lot of you, if you've interacted in Dearborn, or you work in these areas, and you've actually probably interacted with Shia Muslims uh, more than Sunni, because in this area, uh, the, if you're act- interacting with Lebanese, most of them are Shia, the Shia branch. So the question is, what is there conflict? Is there peace? Historically, it was. It was a peaceful situation where uh, during the uh, the Hajj, which is at a set, the, what is called the pilgrimage, the, Arab, the word, the term for this pilgrimage. It was a time set aside for all Muslims to get together and make this together. So uh, it was a time, but now um, it has become less 
it's not that there's any conflict, but it, Saudi Arabia has made it more and more difficult for Shia countries, uh, particularly Iran, because they're, they've had this kind of Cold War with Iran for going back 30 years, to participate in the pilgrimage. Uh, so you don't you you still see them and it is still peaceful because there's no way to tell them apart when they're there because they're all doing the same the same stuff and normally uh, you're supposed to wear uh, this religious garb when you're there it's just like a, the men wear this like white robe women wear like a white uh, head covering and, and uh, cover their bodies but you know you're not dressed in street clothes or not dressed in anything there's no you don't have anything that would set you apart uh, from anyone else. But uh, when you're there, it it's tends to be peaceful. But Saudi Arabia has definitely taken steps to, to try to limit the Shia, uh, Shia ability to participate. Um, and so, uh, I don't know if that's really getting... It, it, yes, but with a caveat. So I, is, is, I guess, the answer I'd, I'd give. Yeah. What about the people of Indonesia and Pakistan? What's that? They They're mo- uh, Indonesia is mainly a Sunni. Uh, Pakistan is mainly Sunni, uh, not exclusively. There are Shia groups in Pakistan, uh, but uh, most of the countries, Afghanistan, you're dealing with Sunni. Um, Turkey? Turkey is now more Sunni. It has always been a Sunni nation, but it's, you know, historically for probably 70 years was a secular. They strive to be secular. Uh, they've, in the past five years, three, five, three or five years, they've moved more to an Islamist position. Um, and so they, but their expression of Islam is, is Sunni. So the main countries dealing, well, the, the third group, uh, well, let me, so, so these are the main, historically, this is where the Shia, the countries that the Shia have been um, main, mainly present in. Iran, Iraq have, is the oldest, but Bahrain on the uh, Gulf Coast and Lebanon. And all of these countries, if you, I mean, if you know your, your regional history, they've always had conflict uh, going back. And, and right now, Bahrain has had a lot of conflict because the ruler is a, is a Sunni king. The ruler, ruling family are Sunni, and the majority of the people are Shia. And it's the same thing in these. That's what Iraq, the big problem with Iraq. Saddam Hussein was Sunni, but he was ruling a Shia majority, and he was able to keep the peace by dealing with violence. Um, but and there's a third group, the Sufi brotherhoods are the three, the third major group. So Sunni, Shia, and the Sufi brotherhoods are the third main group. Uh, you say Shia, but. Uh, uh, is, is that short for Shiite? Um, and uh, it's not short. It's if just you spe- if you pronounce it as it's spelled, it would be Shiite. But it might be pronounced Shia. That no, also. it's it's Shia. But if you reverse a person, they are Shiite. Okay. Yeah. So it's the person of the religion of the sect. But the sect is Shia. Shia. Yeah. Okay. In uh, Arabic, that's how it would be written. Uh, yeah. Uh, what about uh, Yemen? Yemen? Uh, Yemen's almost exclusively Sunni, 98% Sunni. Uh, so that's, uh, there's actually a rebellion going on now 
uh, it's partially the Shia minority is actually been staging. That's what the civil war is part of it. Is uh, there's a Shia minority that's been uprising, but it's almost exclusively Sunni. So all the that's why if you go towards East Dearborn, the really part almost into Detroit and the mosque that's over in East Dearborn, that's mainly it's a Sunni mosque and that's mainly Yemeni, uh, the Yemeni neighborhood over there. Yeah, that's actually so that's a reflection of Yemeni, the Yemeni culture, not the uneducated part, but they I don't know, the socioeconomic breakdown of the Arab kingdom, uh, you know, Arab countries, Yemen is always lagged pretty far behind. Uh, they're probably near the bottom as far as um, <coughs> anything from uh, mortality rates to education levels to, um, you know, uh, I mean, there's actually derogatory jokes that a lot of Arabs make about <coughs> And so they end up being laborers a lot of times in different countries. So, yeah. what is it like in India? I worked with a lot of Indians. One was a Sikh Indian. He had wore the turban. Yeah. And yeah so that's completely different. That's not even. That's not Islam. That's Islam. Not Islam. Yeah, Sikh is just. It's a, that's the that's the religion. The Sikh religion. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So. India does have a, a really large Muslim population, right. but the Sikhs are are just that. They're Sikhs. Good question. So, what what is the difference? I mean, Sunni, Shia, and stuff. Is that are they tribes? Is that what? It no, is? they're not. They're not tribes. It's a different. Um, I don't want to jump too far ahead because we're going to spend a decent amount. But the quick answer is the Sunni and the Shia break down after after Muhammad dies. There's no one. He doesn't set a leader for the community. So the, there's four uh, leaders. They call them caliphs who follow Muhammad, everyone accepts, after his death. The fourth is uh, his nephew, Ali. And when Ali, and the, the breakdown happens after Ali, so then the Shia say, would believe that the family of the Prophet should rule the community. They believe it should follow on bloodline. The Sunni, uh, to, to kind of simplify it, say that whoever's the most qualified person in the community should rule uh, the, the community. And so there's precedent that's set because what they say is that, um, so the Shia would say Ali was, you know, handpicked by, he was one of the first followers, he was handpicked by Muhammad to lead the armies in many cases. You know, in his absence, he led the community. He was his most faithful, one of his most faithful, his most beloved followers. Uh, and that, you know, that, that sets this precedent for, you know, following bloodline. The Sunni point to Muhammad would have uh, this, this his first the first person his name is Abu Bakr would be the he would let him lead prayers and this they would say well the prophet was setting precedent you know he was handpicking this man who was outside his bloodline to lead the prayers which is doesn't sound like a big deal to us but to them it's you know the the imam or the the most qualified person always leads the prayer. So Muhammad, when Muhammad's absence, he chose Abu Bakr, and so he was saying, setting this precedent: this this man is qualified; he's supposed to lead the community. It's not going to be a bloodline issue, and so that's where the breakdown is. So it's it's who who should lead the the community. So they're born into it; it's not something they choose. Correct. Yeah. 
Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, any other uh, more questions? Yeah. I have a comment on it. It was a real eye opener to see how the followers of Muhammad um, were, were uh, persecuted, suffered. Yeah. It was really eye opening. Yeah, and this that is really the one of the key events of the formation of Islam. This persecution of that goes on, uh, and there's a, probably you remember a scene. There's his. Uh, there's a. Um, uh, slave, uh, slave from somewhere I don't remember what from Africa, but they're crushing him with a rock. And this was supposed. This is a historical thing. So Bilal, which was the, the, his name, is eventually he's manumitted. So they they purchase him and free him, and then he becomes part of Muhammad's followers. But he was being persecuted because he had followed, he had voiced his support, and they they actually that rock was heated. So they would heat the rock on a fire, and then they would crush it. You know, drop it on the person, and and that's how they would torture him. Uh, but yeah, so that this it it got so bad that they that's why they fled. But yeah, this really is it's it's important to understand the formation of the mindset and how why what the Quran talks about when the Quran talks about defending Muslim country, defending the land, defending each other. But you know, this it's the crucible of violence uh, that they're encountering, the persecution early on sets this mindset in the Quran and has had effects even to this day. But that's a great observation. Uh, what did you guys think about in the documentary? I mean, they spent a lot of time talking about women. If you, if you remember that documentary, they spent a lot of time kind of pushing the, the point that women, the unique position women have, the, you know, I don't know if any of you remember that. Um, but that was uh, really one of the big points in that documentary is you know, the, how women are under Islam have been given unique and special privilege. Uh, I don't understand it because I don't see that happening. I think yeah. the opposite in, a, in the society today. So when they said that in the film, I was very confused by that because I thought, okay, where did that break down happen? That's a, that's a great observation, right? So how... When we watch something that like that on a documentary, it, it helps to clue us in on one hand, what is the purpose of the documentary, right? So they're trying to push this narrative, right? But um, how do we square that with what we actually are seeing? Because what we're seeing today is, you know, in Saudi Arabia, they just get the right to, they only just, they can only now just drive, right? So we're talking 2017, and it's like this big deal that now women can drive. Uh, and they had to push the issue. You know, you had, for the last couple of years, women would just drive illegally, and force themselves to be arrested. You know, they would go out, make an announcement, I'm going to go out, like on public media, I'm going to be driving on these streets. The police would know. But they would do it to attract attention because they're trying to say this is ridiculous. You know, Saudi women, the average Saudi woman is normally educated. You know, they, they send their women abroad to learn, to go to college, and they come back. And so you have college-educated women who are treated like, you know... Uh, and they, they get this education and they come back and they're like, this is ridiculous, I can't drive. So you see things like that. You see what goes on in places like Yemen. We talked about with Yemen. You know, the women in, under Yemeni culture are very, you know, kind of kept down and pushed down. Um, and, and so, you know, how do we square these things? And this is really, this is one of the main, I, uh, I'll, I'll grab you there in a second, Wes. This is one of the main things we want to try to understand with as we go through this topic of Islam. Why? The things that we talk about, the theory, why does it not match the practice? You know, what and so how do we how do we correlate it or how do we understand it or how do we take 
this knowledge that we're learning about Islam, that Muslims were actually would say about Islam, and then square it with what we see. And, you know, that's what we're really trying to get at with this class. But really, uh, this is the case, you know, especially with women. I mean, you say, if you talk to the average, um, especially Western, Western uh, Muslim woman, she's going to say this. This I've heard this from women in, you know, when I was in university. You know, this is the kind of thing you hear from the, the girls in college and stuff. You know, Islam, you know, it's free, gives women, you know, the rights to this and that. The problem is, is it's, it never finds an expression in the out in the village, out in the city, out in the town, and that's the even when they come here to America, they struggle with that. You know, if they're in a large community, they they bring those practices over, uh, and they still mistreat women. I mean, you still, you know, every once in a while you hear a case in like New York City or something. It was a few years ago, even honor killings, even showing up here in America. Uh, so there, these practices of bringing. And the, the very fact that there's an honor, honor killing, you know, shows that how is, there's a disconnect between what we are reading about how great women are treated in Islam versus how they're actually being treated. Because, you know, the man, you know, in, in the, the case where I, when I was in, in the West Bank and there was an honor killing in the town we were staying in, the, the man was actually, nothing happened to him. The girl was actually shot by her uncle because of this. You know, so it's like, there's a, there's a complete disconnect. You know, the man is okay. There's no problem. We're accept this. The girl, like, she has to die. Um, uh, one second. I wanted to grab Wes. He had his hand up. I, I think it's one of two things. It's either a really high-quality Joseph Goebbels-type propaganda piece that these women are induced to say all these good things, or, or what they're doing is they're comparing it to what the women faced before uh, yeah. Islam came along. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the second point is really important because that's really what they'll say. They'll say, well, before Islam came, you know, if you remember, I talked about that in one of the first section, sessions is that, you know, they would leave the female babies out in the desert and bury them in the sand. And they actually touched on that in the movie, if you were listening. Right? You know, so this is always a point they'll bring up prior to Islam. You know, women were treated horribly. Well, now under Islam, it's great, but you know, it's it's connecting this. It's not talking about right now. It's talking about this age. You know, fifteen hundred years ago. So I think you're you're on to it. There was. I don't know what I'm Sorry. Yeah, I should have. Uh, and before I, um, if it gets warm in here, you can crack a window. So I know it was uh, just someone just give someone a signal and crack a window. Um, an honor killing is, or in what we talk about when it, an honor killing. So I, I don't want to get too dark because we're obviously going to cover this when we cover women in Islam. But just real quickly, in with in the case of an honor killing, women are tend, are, are normally in Islamic culture, and it's particularly in Arab culture, Arab Islamic culture, women are like considered the vessels, the storehouses of honor for the family. And so women have a unique responsibility among the family to preserve the honor of the whole family. So in a case where a woman has done something that comes across as improper, it could be she slept with another with a man, she was unmarried or married, doesn't matter, but she slept with a man outside of not being married to him. And they're not going to get married. So it'd be it's okay if 
they do this and then they find out, well, okay, now you have to get married. And they decide, no, we're not, you know, no. Then that's an issue. Or it could be as simple as in some countries, uh, so countries in like Afghanistan uh, or Pakistan that are more tribal. If I were to go to Jenny and on the just walk up to Jenny on the street and just start talking to her in a very bold fashion, and her, and that would be enough to put her her honor in question. Well, why is she, why would she talk to this guy? Why? How dare? What kind of woman talks to a man out in public? And so that actually may incur violence in the same way in these tribal regions. So what it is is. Honor killings then are in extreme cases they would actually kill the woman in order to restore the honor of the family. So in the case when I was in the West Bank, this woman, this young girl, she was I think 19 or 20, was having you know a relationship with this Muslim man. She was Christian, he was Muslim, which you think is the big issue, but actually wasn't the issue. It was that she was doing this outside of wedlock, um, or you know just fornicating, and it had gone public. And uh, in this case, the the she had three sisters. So looking at the families, like the, the sisters now, no one will marry this family. These girls have no chance at ever being married. No one will marry this family. No one will actually interact with this family anymore. They've been completely dishonored. The only way we can restore this honor of the family, and only chance that these young girls have for marrying into the future, is we have to we have to restore our honor. And the only way of restoring the honor is if we we, the family, take her out and we kill her to show that we take this serious. And so the uncle, you know, literally took her out to the olive field, olive grove, and, and they shot her down. Did I misunderstand you? Did you say they were Christian girls? Yeah, it was a Christian girl and a Muslim guy. Yeah. And Muslim, what's that? The family had to be Muslim too, right? No, there was uh, the Christ, The family was Christian in this case. But they don't follow Christians. Don't follow that exactly. Though. So this is so more of a, this. Thing. This actually points to more of a cultural issue. But you see it more in Islam. But it's it's in Islamic countries. It's the case. So it's it was a uh, a cultural thing. But and I will say this across the board: all the people in the village, whether Christian or Muslim, thought, saw it as a positive because. How else? How else are these women, for one hand, ever going to get married? And how else are we going to stop our children from engaging in this type of behavior? We have to show, take a hard line. So. Well, that, that's kind of interesting because it totally contradicts what the Word of God says. Yeah, it's not a Christian. Jesus Christ. I, I agree. No, I agree. It's and actually a pastor, even from a pastor. Yeah. You know, a pastor who we would, we would actually consider, you know, part of the same circles as we are did not have anything negative. I don't think he would have done it, anything like this, but he didn't have anything negative to say because he's looking at it from his cultural milieu, you know. Yeah. Uh, question? Oh, I was I was about to ask you, are you differentiating between biblical Christianity or what cultural. the world considers Christendom? Uh, I, when I'm calling, when I say Christian, I'm just saying how they would self-describe. Okay. Yeah, so self-describe Christian. You know, and, and, and in Muslim countries, this is a bigger deal. This goes back to the ID card that says you're a religion. You know, it's a bigger deal. You're born into this religion. This is who you are. It's part of your family, your, your identity, more so than it is here uh, in our country. So, uh, but it was it would be their self identity, self identification. If they're taking this as seriously as uh, the Jews would, 
to stone one of their own in the Old Testament, it's possible that might be where they got it from. Well, and so that that raises, yeah, so that, uh, she's raising it, now she's going to raise a whole other can of worms that we, <laughs> I'm afraid to get down because we don't want to go, but this is all, so this is really important things to think about because these are the things that you're going to encounter as you start to, as you you begin to have opportunity to interact deeper and deeper with uh, Muslim co-workers, friends, family, neighbors. These are the issues. You know, these are where Islam shows up as this kind of interaction. Why is it that, you know, if any of you have ever interacted with a Muslim woman, a man, and you go to shake their hand and they're they won't shake your hand. You know, why Why is that? You know, it's weird for us, right? You know, the, why, you know, we just shake each other's hand. Although Baptists were a little bit, we're a little more standoffish, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's normal for us to shake hands with women, with men, it doesn't matter. But, you know, Muslim, why do they do that, right? You know, there's this real strong, hard divide between gender. The, the gender spheres don't, don't mix like we do. And so when you, a co-worker, you know, you, why... You know what you maybe as a woman are transmitting by being friendly to someone you would just in normal fashion who's a Muslim is maybe sending someone a mixed signal because they're looking at it from their own cultural understanding. So, uh, any other questions on or just any comments on anything else that was in the videos, um, movies, anything like that? About when they take the, the girls out and put them in the sand to die, was that part of the Arab culture? As a whole, yeah, before, it was a, uh, a different idolatry. Like, no, no, no. So, great question. So, this is just this is tribal Arabian culture that's present throughout the whole Arabian Peninsula. This is Arab. This is the Arab Bedouin culture. That hard life of living on, you know, in the desert, you know, and, and really, that's a that's an outgrowth of that. So, it's not a religion thing. It's just you know, a practical thing that, that becomes ingrained in Arab culture, uh, that Bedouin culture. So. Yeah. Just two, two real quick things. Uh, the, the women, uh, we went to a, uh, a Muslim funeral uh, back 2004. And uh, anyway, uh, Jan to go in was, you know, Strongly encouraged slash required to wear uh, a scarf. Uh, is that is that uh, is that a, is that submitting to Islam? Or is that just a sign of respect? Um, I well, think it is a sign of, of that's respect. yeah. It's Where a great neighbor died, and I wanted to be at her funeral. And if I needed yeah. to wear a scarf to go in there and be at her funeral, I was going to do that. Not sure if I'd do it again, but yeah. And since. So, this this is the question at the heart of these are really the heart, the issue we're trying to get at. How do we how do we as Christians engage with Islamic culture? We don't we don't want to take it in. We don't want to absorb practices that are going to somehow connect us with Islamic culture. But we want to show respect, just like we would to any of our other neighbors, right? And so I think in that case, I mean, Lisa can talk. We we were in Israel, and I took her to. Um, the tomb of the patriarchs. So this is where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and his, you know, all the patriarchs, uh, the Old Testament are believed to be entombed. And there's a on one side it's a Jewish, actually the entrances are here on either side, but it's a, a synagogue on the first floor and then a mosque on the second floor. Um, and when you go in there, Lisa had to cover up 
you know, and we we only allowed in the mosque, the synagogue. They don't let anybody in. They don't let Christians or Muslims in. So to visit, you actually have to go into the mosque. And she had to wear the whole, like a, she actually looked like an Ewok, you know, <laughs> or a Jawa. No, she looked like a Jawa. If you know what a Jawa was from Star Wars, with the pointy hood and everything, because uh, she's short. <laughs> but it was funny. But you know, these things you wrestle with because, you know. The oppression we you know we associate that the head covering and the headscarf with oppression, and so do we want to engage in that? Do we refuse? But I think in Jan's case, I think that was you know the right case. You know, you're not you're not trying to show any association. You're just doing it clearly out of respect for someone that you cared about. You know, I we Lisa and I were just at this candidate school, and a lot of the missionaries that that are working in these countries. For instance, if you go to Saudi Arabia, if any of you have a chance to go, have to go there for business, for instance, you, you have to wear, wear a, a head cover. There's no, it's not an option. So to go out in public, everybody, Christian, Muslim, you know, uh, atheist, doesn't matter. Everyone's wearing, all the women are wearing a headscarf, uh, some type of headscarf, head covering to cover their hair. In Iran, uh, not, you know, some countries it's just, Suggested some countries it's mandatory, even no matter what. And I, I could be wrong, and Aaron maybe, but I think even in the military they suggest in certain areas. Ah, uh, yeah, they, they, they do depending they, on you know. Yeah. Just the area here. Yeah. I know in Iraq they did not, and even it wasn't even enforced. Right. For the Christians that lived there and were born. Right. So t- uh, mainly this is going to be in the Gulf region. So a lot of times the Navy deals with it because they have some naval bases in the Gulf, but the women. Even the U.S. military makes women uh, in Bahrain and in the Gulf countries uh, cover up out, out of a shine, sign of respect. So it's not assimilated to the heart. What's that? Is that is that a submission to Islam too? I would say no. No. I would say no, but that's you know, uh, I can't flesh it out right now just because we're time time constrained. But I, I would say just a quick answer, no. Okay. And we'll try to cover that more as we get into the topic on women. Because I think they're the ones who are actually bearing the brunt of this type of things. I also think it's more of a respect thing just for the individual. It's not necessarily you have to respect the religion by any means. Yeah. But that individual, if you show them that respect, they're actually probably going to be more susceptible to opening up to you yeah. than if you don't respect it. And then they're just going to stand up and say, okay, yeah. well, you don't value me or my, yeah, my beliefs to a certain extent. So I think we start pouring this through a, a Christian grid. Uh, what is our goal? What are we doing? Are we, you know, on one hand, we don't want to display this this message that hey, I'm I'm one of you, but on the other hand, we don't want to set an unnecessary stumbling block that may impede our ability to share the gospel. Jerry, I think I'm thinking of in the Bible where the meat is sacrificed to the gods. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, First Corinthians. Yeah, so that, this is the issue. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, it's nothing, the idol's nothing, the food is nothing, do it. But, Paul says, if it, if it becomes a stumbling block, then, you know, we always do everything with, for love for the other person. We actually had this discussion with girls when, we, when I was studying abroad, and so some of the young girls would just wear it because they thought it was cool. And, you know, then, you know, you have to wonder, like, because on one hand, it's one thing if you're doing it out of respect for, like, an occasion. But then there's, I think there's another issue if you're just doing it because this seems fun, you know, it seems exotic. Whereas Muslim women don't get the chance to just go home and take it off when they're done. When they when they get bored of it, they can't just take it off. Whereas 
a Westerner who thinks that oh, this is cool, I want to do it for a little while, and then I get bored and I can just take it off and get rid of it. You know, the, the Muslim woman doesn't have that option. It's just she's wearing this on all the time. And so, any other questions about that? It's actually really interesting and fascinating. I mean, if you, you know, they don't wear it all the time. They only wear it out in public. So if you visit a Muslim woman at their house, you know, they're not. They're just, they look like, they probably dress more provocative than most people in this room would <laughs> in their home. So, you, but you show up, they're going to cover up real quick. Uh, and if there's no other questions related to the topic, we'll kind of wrap up uh, this topic on Muhammad real quick, and then try to get into the topic on the Quran, which is our next topic, which is what the handout I think you guys have. Um, we talked about so you guys seen this flight, this flight from Mecca to Medina, the persecution that goes on. It was depicted in the movie. Uh, Muhammad is is really intensely persecuted by his own tribe. So the people who are persecuting are his tribesmen, the people he had grown up with, the people who, with whom he would basically say, this is my family, are the ones who had, because he was now, uh, you know, saying this message of Islam, are, are now persecuting him. So he, him and his followers, this B team of Meccan society, I say B team because these weren't like, his followers were not, and we're here at this point, in 622, Hijra were not like the most prominent members of the Meccan society. They were like the next level down. So they were uh, maybe people who were important but not connected, uh, maybe who were not supported, prominent members of the tribe, but they were kind of the next layer down, people who were not connected to a tribe but maybe rich merchants, um, that kind of thing. Well, they, they take off, they go to Mecca, or to Medina. They leave Mecca to go to Medina. Um, they do so because the message that Muhammad's preaching meant that uh, the lives of the Meccan elite would be upended. We talked about this um, pilgrimage. You know, why, what's going on with that? Well, not only is there this pilgrimage, but you saw in the movie there's this big festival going on. There was a huge amount of income connected with this pilgrimage. And this is even the case today with, with you know, Mecca. I mean, it's, it's this grand... You know, event, people are spending money, they're in a good mood. And so the Meccan elite had been involved with trade for a long time, but very quickly they actually start making more of their wealth from this pilgrimage than they do from trade. And so when Muhammad comes and he's preaching this message of, you know, I, you guys are idolaters, you need to turn to back to the true God, they can read their handwriting on the wall uh, and they, they see clearly this is a threat to our income, a threat to our livelihood. And this is what's driving this this um, uh, this uh, persecution that he's encountering. Um, also, I think I touched on this in the last lecture we had, but also, and this is connected to this point we made about Sunni Islam, he's also, by preaching this message and being the leader they also recognize that their their tribal ordering system is going to be upended if they follow Muhammad Muhammad is no longer just a um, the low man on a totem pole he now is going to be jumping to the top of the culture and all the Meccan elite now are going to have to uh, follow him so they see their not only wealth but their power the power structure that exists in, in Mecca is also becoming, is at stake here. So that's another issue that drives the persecution. 
the tribe in they they go to Medina. Which I have a. So they, they go from Mecca to Medina, and in Medina, if you remember, I talked about there were uh, it was a different situation. They didn't have this uh, pilgrimage. Their wealth was tied more to trade. You can see here there there's some trade routes that actually start in Medina and go north. So they're they're more important to trade. But there were a couple of large Jewish tribes, Jewish, uh, not Jews. They were Jewish Arabs, but they were Jews. Uh, and they were there, and they so they invite Muhammad and his followers come to Medina. We have this dispute, this blood feud going on in the tribes. Uh, I don't know if I covered this idea, this blood feud concept. I think we may have covered it, but it's basically the the eye for an eye idea. So you you kill, you steal from me, you have to give me the same amount. You know, you steal a goat from me, you give me two. You uh, you know, you kill one of mine, I kill one of yours. And so this tit-for-tat escalation had been going on in Medina. This blood feud had been going on out of control um, in that city. And so they call, they asked Muhammad to come up and settle these disputes. So he says, I'll go, but you guys have to basically listen to what I say and accept my ruling and, and me as head of the community kind of thing. And so they say, okay, he goes, he settles these disputes. Uh, it's an important event because at 622, this event is so important that this is the start of the Muslim calendar. So it starts, this is basically year zero on the Muslim calendar at this point. And again, we may have covered some of this, so just making sure that we we got it. Um, so while he's in Medina, it's clear that Muhammad desires to return to Mecca. He wants to go back because he sees this as, as the key, as the central aspect of the religion. This is where... Uh, Islam had been revealed. He wants to go back there. He sees it as, you know, this this focal point. Um, we didn't get this far in the movie, but there's this important battle, the Battle of Badr in 624, where there's this miraculous rout of the Meccan army. So Muhammad and a few, um, let's see, basically 300 of his followers are outnumbered three to one. So there's a thousand uh, Meccan people, uh, army people, they're not army, they're like Meccan tribesmen come out to fight him uh, against these 300 followers. They wipe him out. Uh, they, the 300 wipe out the 1,000. They see it as this miracle, literally a miracle of God. Uh, and it's, um, and actually is sought, talked about in the Quran. This is one of like the key events in, one, in the early Islam. And it, it was one of the events that they look on and say that this, this further demonstrates Muhammad's prophethood. God was on his side. In a similar way, if you, if you remember, this sounds a lot like what would happen in the Old Testament. When God would be with the Israelites, God was giving these miraculous victories to the Israelite army as they were going through under Joshua, you know, into the Holy Land, into the Canaan against these armies. And so there's a, there's a parallel going on there. Um, with what th- what happens here and what you know the Old Testament history, uh, six thirty, he's able to return. And if you look at the, the timeline, he's only two years before he dies. Uh, he's he takes he's able to retake Mecca. He does it without basically no bloodshed. At this point, um, 
the Meccans begin to realize, like, this guy, we, we're not going to win. He's, we can't, we're just going to, so they basically invite him in, and he takes the city without really any bloodshed. Uh, let me read this quote. Medina is the city of the prophet. So we talk about Mecca, Medina. Medina in Arabic means city, and it was known as Medina and Nabi, which is the city of the prophet. So Medina is the city of the prophet, and Mecca is the city of God. Uh, this is from the Islamic point of view. Medina was the home in the realm of migration, this idea where they migrated. Mecca shall remain the source of strength and unity for all Muslims to the day of resurrection. Mecca could not be the seat of temporal authority because it was the sanctuary of God. However, just the, just the rule of any person over Mecca, that ruler might still, through human frailty, violate the sanctity of the sacred house. It was Medina which provided the model for the community, while Mecca provided its source of strength and permanence. Islam is, is not simply a set of beliefs or even a civilization. It is a way of life, a continuous accountability of men and women to God. For this reason, Islam had to have two homes, one as its source, the other for its growth. So Mecca and Medina, the tying of these two cities. One, you know, Mecca is seen as the, the source of Islam, Medina, which is important for the growth of Islam. Uh, the final phase of Muhammad's life and career begins in 630, the last two years. He conquers Mecca, lived out the remaining of his years there, teaching and ruling from the mosque. So this is, it seems like a point that it would be easy to pass over. So he spends his last two years of his, his life literally ruling from the mosque. So we talk about uh, one of the, the conversations we have with Islamic countries is why is there no separation of church and state? You know, this is one of the central, um, you know, uh, core foundational beliefs in Western, you know, uh, civilization, the separation of church and state. Why is there nothing like this that exists in, this, in the Islamic world? Well, it's this event, it's this precedence that they point to. Muhammad ruled the community from the mosque. There is no such thing in the Islamic worldview for a separation of church and state. He ruled the civil arena and the religious arena from the same place, being the mosque, the religious realm. So these are tied intricately together. So the idea that there's no, there's no room for the majority of Muslims, this idea of separation of church and state uh, is a non-starter. I mean, you have people pushing this, but why will it never gain traction? It's because the precedent that Muhammad sets. And you remember, Muhammad is the, the Muslim par excellence. Right? He's the one that we look to for if we, what's a good Muslim? It's, it's Muhammad. So how do we be good Muslims? We follow Muhammad's example. And Muhammad did not, he joined these two realms, the secular and the, uh, the religious. We should too. <coughs> um, Islam spreads throughout Arabia. At this point, so he dies in 632. Islam begins to spread throughout Arabia really quickly. It spreads through Yemen, through Syria. Uh, Muhammad had remarried a number of times after his wife's death, although his uh, Khadija always was like his his most treasured wife. Uh, he marries um, Abu Bakr's what daughter Aisha. She was eight, so. If you hear, you probably have heard she was eight, nine. When they married, supposedly they didn't consummate the marriage till much later, but she was married at age nine to Muhammad. Uh, and Aisha is actually 
becomes important for down the line because she's a bit of a troublemaker after he dies. Um, the records show that despite receiving sizable wealth from all his conquests, so as they conquer the Arabian Peninsula, more and more wealth begins pouring into the region. Uh, but he, the records seem to say that he lived a simple life up to the very end. He also continues receiving the revelations of the Quran up to 632. So up until his death, he continues to receive these revelations. So we've discussed that Muhammad is the ideal Muslim. He's the picture to which every Muslim strives to emulate. Uh, one author says, Muhammad is the example of equilibrium which characterizes Islam. Islam is the religion of balance between the extreme of too much and too little. He was neither a recluse or an ascetic. He was married. He had children. Uh, the love that he showed his children, especially his two grandchildren, Hassan and Hussein, who were both martyred later on, uh, was exemplary. He was a loving and just husband. Again, these are Islamic writers. Many of his marriages, marriages, plural, right? So he was polygamous. Uh, were marriages that he were dictated by the needs of women uh, without a home and someone to care for them. I mean, this is if you if you're paying attention, this echoes the story of David, right? So David does he marries, you know, Abigail. He he does, you know. There's this connection with this idea as well. So kind of paralleling a biblical narrative. <coughs> he was a just and merciful ruler. Not no, not only is Muhammad's Sunnah or his his example imperative for Muslims to follow, but his spirit continues to does dominate Muslim piety to this day. So we here in the West like our history <coughs> preoccupied with data's data points with facts, right? On this day, in this place, this particular person did this event. You know, Battle of Hastings, the, you know, the Normandy. You know, we want hard facts on dates and times. For the Muslim, the significance of Muhammad isn't the years of his birth. It's not the years he fled Mecca or Medina, although they are important. But the significance of Muhammad's life lie in the anecdotes about his life, the example he left behind for his community. And so that's where we'll end on this topic, but it's really important that we understand that. Muhammad's importance is the example he left for his community. And that's what I was talking about when I said that this issue of separation, just one example, the separation of church and state. Why is that impossible? Any questions on that? Um, for the Quran to be written, um, wouldn't you call it the revelations that were given to Muhammad? Is that what you said? Or the words that you used? Yeah. How did, like, I guess, where did that come from? Did he make it up, or... So he, they say that he's receiving these things in his ear, basically as like a voice in his ear. Outside the first couple revelations that he receives directly from an angel, a vision of an angel that he has in the cave. So for the rest of his life, it's just like a voice in his ear. Um, yeah, it, it is hard to understand, but that's what they believe. Yeah. Any other uh, questions on that? Good question. I mean, it is. It's hard to wrap our mind around something like that. Like we wouldn't just believe it, but remember, there's other miracles that wrap around his life that we we all tie in together. So he he's saying this, but they're believing him because of these other things that happen. 
you know, even his illiteracy is, ties into this thing. Yeah. Are we going to go right into the Hadith? We will. Uh, not, not immediately, but we are, because they are important, because they, they, they give us... The Hadiths are like recordings of the sayings of the Prophet. So things he said to people in circumstance. Why are they important? Because really the Hadiths have more to do with the day-to-day life of the Muslim, the average Muslim, than the Quran does. Um, and you have something a similar parallel with Judaism, because you have in Judaism today. If you under, if you know Judaism today, uh, in, say in Israel, the the average is Jew who's follow you know who call religious Jew is more preoccupied with following the teachings of a particular rabbi than they are reading the Old Testament and following you know what the word what it says in the old, the Torah. So there's a similar parallel. Any other questions as we get into this topic? I want to just at least introduce it. Um, before, I'll, let me read the quote. The central messages of the Quran are embedded in its structure in the way that its component parts are put together. So pulling a random verse out of context is as likely as not to produce misinformation. So what does that mean? It means it's the same thing. We would say the same thing about the Bible, right? We don't pull a Bible verse out of context and just throw it down. Even though it's common, even though people do it, it's a, it's we're, we're likely to end up in a wrong place by doing so. And it's the same thing with the Quran. You know, whether we want to, however we view the Quran, doing something like cherry-picking a verse out of, out of a, in a particular spot, uh, will likely end up in leading us into a, a wrong place, and I say that because we sometimes you'll see that as uh, certain writers will say, "Well, this verse says this," and not give any context for that. And if you think about it, we can—you've probably heard similar uh, critiques against Christianity. What would be a, if any of you can think of one? What would be a, what's a popular one? Probably for me. An eye for an eye, right? So uh, that thou shalt not kill, right? Sometimes they say, well, you shouldn't. Uh, let's misapply that. Thou shalt not kill, so we should be not engage in any any kind of killing, murder, anything, uh, warfare. What would be another one. Judge not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a popular one, right? We obviously because we all ready to. Yeah. I can do all things to Christ. Yeah. I was actually thinking of, also, that's another good one, but I was thinking of a historical event. So we would talk about the Battle of Jericho. And if you ever heard um, or that the Canaanite, the, the Canaanite conquest, and, the, and you would hear unbelievers will point to that and say, God, your God of the Bible engaged in genocide. Because we can point to this and say, God said, kill their children, you know, dash their heads against the rock. So... You know, I would, I don't want to worship a God like that. So they're cherry picking a verse and pointing to it and saying, "Look, this is an evil God that you worship." So you see a similar. Uh, I, um, I'm careful about. I'm not trying to say that Islam and Christianity are on the same level, but I'm just saying when we approach the topic of the Quran, we can very quickly fall into the same mistake we do as with the Bible. All right, so I introduced it. At least I can say I introduced this topic today before we end. Uh, any any questions uh, before we end? Jen. 
quick question. Um, I know you said that uh, the revelations to Muhammad, like they started at a certain date and they ended at a certain date, yeah. and he was illiterate, so he wasn't the one writing them. Did he have one ghostwriter, or did he have like yeah. multiple? Like, do we know? Great question. So he has later in his life, he's got a few that he kind of are their unofficial recorders, but most of it comes is just compilations from people who are around him. So it's basically it's good. And I'll talk about this when we, as we get into this topic. But it go, ranges from guys writing on like pieces of bark to something more formal, like writing on a, uh, you know, um, writing manuscripts. But it's just this range of things. But there's no official guy. It's not like Paul had an official guy recording his thoughts. Right. right. It's just follow up to that. I'm sorry. Um, did he verify those then? Like, no. Could, okay. Yeah, no. Thank you. Yeah. No, he doesn't, and that's the problem. That's, this is the immediate problem that starts right after his death is that he doesn't verify it and it's up to his followers to, to figure out, okay, what, what, what is the real stuff and what is the version we're going to stick with? Because really quickly you have competing versions beginning to crop up after his death. So one of his followers says, okay, we're going to take, this one is going to be the official, we're going to burn all the other editions and this is what you have. So there, he, he doesn't. He doesn't do any of that. Uh, so his death kind of catches the community off guard. He doesn't set leadership. He doesn't set, you know, what happens with the word that he's been preaching to people and recording. None of that is, is set in stone. So great question. Uh, yeah, last question. Uh, I know in the documentary that you were talking about, of course, the five pillars of Islam. Uh, with that, are we going to go over later in this series about their keys to verifying or solidifying your salvation within Islam? Uh, yes, um, we will, but... Um, yeah, we will. But probably, we want, I don't know how in-depth we'll be able to get, but we will. Okay. Yeah, we, we definitely will, and that's under, like, faith and practice. So how does it actually show up? What are the essentials of their belief? How do they know or not know really is the key. They don't know and they don't have that assurance of salvation that Christians have. So, good question. Let me close this really quickly in prayer and then we'll we'll finish. Lord God, we just thank you for today and for this opportunity. We thank you for each one here who's interested and has a burden to learn more. Uh, We pray, Father, that as we go about our days in the coming week, that we have opportunity to just know our neighbors, to get them to know them better, to share the love of Christ where we can, um, to be discerning uh, and wise in our speech and our actions, but above all else, to, to love, uh, love others as uh, you loved us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.